I felt like I was living a charmed life. I was running a company I had founded. Things were going great. You know, what do you do when you want to figure out whether you're going to get the $40 million and nobody answers the phone? Well, you better love what you do and you better be doing it because you really believe in it. Because when you're struggling through hard times, you know, you need to believe the work you're doing really matters. Welcome to Entrepreneurship and Ethics, a new mini-series we're presenting on the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast. I'm Professor Tom Byers, and I teach entrepreneurship here at Stanford's School of Engineering. We were planning to launch this series closer to the beginning of the summer, but the first episode we recorded just seems too relevant to sit on it any longer. So we're releasing it now. When Jazz Pharmaceutical CEO Bruce Kozad sat down with my colleague Jack Fuchs and me a few months ago, we had no idea how Bruce's story about navigating the 2008 financial crisis would feel so relevant today. As entrepreneurs all over the world respond to the COVID-19 crisis and think about saying farewell to employees and rethinking their growth plans, I hope that Bruce's principled approach to his own company's existential crisis provides a useful perspective. I first learned about Bruce's story when Jack used it as a case study in his new Stanford course called Principled Entrepreneurial Decisions. That course explores how entrepreneurial leaders can develop strong principles to guide their decision-making. And I began our conversation by asking Jack to describe that brilliant course. We'll get to that in just a second. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll stay tuned for future entrepreneurship and ethics conversations on the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast. We'll publish the next installment featuring Theranos whistleblower Erica Chung next month. Now here's Jack. Yeah, I developed uh, the course uh, Principled Entrepreneurial Decisions to try to help entrepreneurs uh, guide them so they can develop their own values and principles that they would use as they lead organizations in the future. We have cases that are written about CEOs that have been in difficult situations where there's not a clear right or wrong answer. Uh, We invite those CEOs to class. The students debate uh, what decision they would make and what principles they think are at play. And then the CEO gets up and responds to the students and reacts to to, to the discussion. And what we try to teach the students is the discussion should not be about the specific actions. They should be a about the principles that underlie that decision. And but by prioritizing those principles and understanding those principles within the context of the difficult situation, they'll be best able to make the best decision. This is a terrific opportunity. Let's get in the way back machine <laughs> and go back uh, 15 or 16 years to the founding of Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Bruce, um, what was your vision at the time? Um, what led you to start it? Yeah, great question. And, and you know, just to be transparent, I never thought I would found a company. I was not an entrepreneur. Uh, I was somebody that wanted to lead a biopharmaceutical company uh, for the benefit of patients, right, creating uh, curative or life-changing medicines. Uh, but I sort of backed into the decision to, to found a company in large part because I wanted that company to have a certain culture, which is a, a long way of saying I cared about values when I founded the company. Something seemed important to you was this notion of patient centricity. What does that mean? Or what did that mean to jazz then and even today? 
Yeah, so most most people that go into the biopharmaceutical or more broadly healthcare industry really do start out with this fundamental desire to make a difference in people's lives. Uh, the question is, when you're running a company, do you actually make decisions that are grounded in that mission of helping to improve patients' lives? Uh, if you're selling a drug that can help some patients and would harm other patients, is your goal to sell as much of the drug as possible? Or is your goal to sell it to those patients who would benefit and is in, uh, intentionally keep it away from those who might be uniquely armed, right? That would be a patient-centric view. So can you build that into a company from the start? We have a mission. Everything should be guided toward that mission. Okay. So let's go back to 2008 when uh, um, is famously being called the worst cr- financial crisis since the uh, depression of the tw- 1920s. Where was the company right before those early signs started to to show that it was going to be one of those um, terrible years? Yeah, we were a fast-growing, uh, optimistic, ambitious company, uh, consuming a lot of capital. Uh, you know, investing in commercializing products, but also investing in an R and D pipeline. Uh, and spending a lot to advance multiple programs forward. So, uh, you know, our expectation was our strategy would continue to work uh, and that someday we'd turn profitable, right? Someday those investments would pay off. I'll say as a former and reformed uh, investment banker, uh, you know, I was watching with some interest as it became clear that Bear Stearns might go under. And, you know, this had just never occurred to me that a, you know, household name, reputable, long-lived company uh, could go under that fast. Uh, you know, most, most companies, and we were by now a public company, uh, talk in their SEC filings about what can go wrong. And, and we certainly talked about many things that could go wrong. One we missed was that Lehman Brothers could go under. And, and, you know, the listener may be saying, okay, it was Bear Stearns before, it's Lehman now, what's the difference? Well, Lehman was our prime lender. Lehman had committed to give us another $40 million of capital at the end of 2008, and we were really dependent on that. And when a company goes bankrupt, you can call them on Monday and say, you promised to give me $40 million, but there's no one there to pick up that phone. You know, so the question was, how do we uh, reduce our dependence on external capital, right? How do we spend less? How do we generate more income, more operating income as quickly as possible? And that meant reducing our ambitions, right? We can't work on as many parallel programs or we need to do them in a more cost-effective way. Uh, You know, we need to push off some of our investments, We can't hire as quickly. Maybe we need to downsize. You know, you start thinking about how can I make do with less? Just to give you a sense of the timeline here, Bear Stearns collapsed in March of 2008. Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank in the world, went bankrupt six months later on September 15th. And the minute Lehman Brothers went under, Jazz Pharmaceuticals' $40 million lifeline evaporated. When the Jazz leadership team convened after learning about the Lehman Brothers' collapse, they knew significant layoffs were on the table. Saying goodbye to many talented colleagues wasn't going to be easy, but the principles baked into the company helped them go about those layoffs in a unique and thoughtful way. Uh, 
Uh, you know, one of the principles uh, people always talk about when you're when you're thinking about something like this is how quickly can you get to the new organization, right? The people that are staying and talk just to them about how to move forward. And that often leads people to the decision that you want to get departing employees out as quickly as you can because they're not part of the conversation anymore. Uh, And we ended up going the opposite direction, which is we held an all-employee meeting, departing and staying employees. Departing employees had been respectfully and individually informed, right? They weren't hearing about it in the group. But we asked everybody to come to the meeting, and we told everybody why we were making the decisions we were making. And then, honestly, we did something that I think comes pretty close to employee counseling, which was, you know, we talked directly to the people who were staying and said, you know, the people that are sitting next to you who've lost jobs are no less talented than they were yesterday. They're still your colleagues. They're still great researchers. They're still great marketers. Don't treat them differently starting now because they're out of a job. The decisions we made weren't based on talent level. They were based on our need. And then I talked directly to the departing employees, and I said, and you can't change the way you view yourself. Yesterday, you viewed yourself as a talented, successful professional in our industry, and you are still that, right? We got ourselves in an economic situation that requires drastic action to survive, right? It was existential for us. Um, Please understand why we're doing what we're doing. And we're going to treat you well. We're going to bend over backwards to treat you well. We probably paid more severance than you normally would, but recognize that awful environment we were putting people out into. And then I said, I hope we get the company back on track, and I hope many of you come back someday. Jack, how do you handle with Bruce the discussion about uh, the Lehman Brothers crisis? It's one thing to uh, to try to help students appreciate that moment in time. And it's hard, especially for students whose entire careers have, have only seen uh, – everything moving up and to the right. Um, when, uh, when, when jobs are plentiful, um, it is, it is, it's important, though, to try to lay the foundation and help students appreciate that there are these cycles because they're going to have to wrestle with these cycles. The odds that we're going to keep going up and to the right for the rest of their careers in their entirety is very low. And so it's, it's extremely important that, especially with Bruce being able to show and feel his emotion up there and be able to describe what it was like to have to go through this incredibly painful time at a company and do just about anything he could to somehow keep the company alive. Um, uh, I think just seeing him and feeling that emotion was probably the best thing for the students. Yeah, I felt like I was living a charmed life. I was running a company I had founded. Things were going great. Uh, And then I found myself in uncharted territory. And I think one of the powerful things about this discussion in class, it was clear that no one knew the right answer, right? And we got a lot of bright people in this class, a lot of analytical people, a lot of great problem solvers. I can figure out the answer. For example, uh, uh, you know, what do you do when you want to figure out whether you're going to get the $40 million and nobody answers the phone? Like, that's not in my playbook. You know, one of the things I had to do was get over that desire to put your head in the sand and, and hope things are better tomorrow uh, and to move toward action. And that's hard to do when you're looking at actions that you don't want to take. Uh, so how do you do that? Again, 
you know, w- why am I a leader? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? Who who do I have responsibilities to? And then how do I not be in this on my own? And so being willing to have that tough conversation with the board of directors, hey, you know, I'm getting the sense we're not on a good path right now and something's got to change. Uh, bringing your team in, uh, we need to attack this problem together. Not I'm going to go in a dark room by myself and figure this out, but we are going to explore this. We're going to throw out lots of ideas. And I, and I think we made it sound like this was all easy. You know, I know what my principles are. Of course, I know what the decisions are. You know, when you're brainstorming, throw everything up on the wall. Don't edit yourself yet. You can come back and apply the principles and the values uh, to various actions once you've got them up on the board. But bring people into that. Inaction is failure. We need to act. Now let's talk about what our options are. Uh, there was a great story that uh, uh, Captain Sullenberger told after the uh, amazing, you know, plane landing on a river where he said, you know, my job, uh, as soon as I realized we had no engines, uh, was to think about what our options were, pick the best one, and execute the hell out of it. The best option, by the way, was not a particularly good option, but it was the best one. And then it was about execute the hell out of it. And I... I remember thinking as I was going through this period, I got to pick the best option, whatever it is, and execute the hell out of it. If you didn't get that Captain Sullenberger reference, he was the airline pilot who made a successful emergency landing in the Hudson River back in 2009. It's a powerful metaphor for what it can feel like to lead an organization when there are no good options on the table. As the financial crisis deepened, Jazz Pharmaceuticals was focused on a drug that showed promise for treating narcolepsy, a condition that disrupts normal nighttime sleep. Bruce was encouraged that the clinical trials for this drug were showing beneficial results. But instead of receiving an additional $40 million from Lehman Brothers to fund its growth, Jazz found itself owing the now bankrupt Lehman Brothers millions of dollars for previous loans, with no lifeline in sight. At the beginning of this episode, Bruce talked about patient centricity as one of the core principles at Jazz Pharmaceuticals. So it's worth asking, how did that principle affect Bruce's decision-making as he struggled to keep both his company and this clinical trial afloat? We've uh, made available to patients with narcolepsy, a very serious neurologic uh, sleep disorder, uh, a drug that helps them function uh, better during the day by reducing their excessive daytime sleepiness and their cataplexy attacks. You know, the important thing to know about a narcolepsy patient is they don't get restorative, slow-wave sleep at night. Uh, and so they can't really function during the day. Their, their sleep-wake switch is broken. Uh, so not a common condition. Narcolepsy affects about 1 out of 2,000 people in the United States. It's a so-called orphan disease, meaning fewer than 200,000 uh, sufferers in the U.S., but it is life-changing uh, for these patients, and, uh, and our therapy, I think, is an, an important sort of gold standard uh, treatment for these patients. Uh, and so, again, us thinking about what would happen if Jazz Pharmaceuticals went out of business, you know, I, it wasn't clear to me how those patients would continue to benefit from therapy. Yeah, so as we approached the end uh, of 2008, 
we had an interest payment due on our debt, uh, which has you know required us sending millions of dollars uh, to this now bankrupt institution. Um, and it became clear to me we didn't have enough money to make the interest payment, continue our operations, including an ongoing clinical trial where we were trying to help patients with a, uh, a tough disease, uh, and get the company to break even. We just we were just going to run out of the mo- run out of money, and so we weren't done with our problem solving. And the question was, what could give? Do you stop the clinical trial? Uh, do you let the company hit a wall and go bankrupt? Uh, you know, what do you do? And uh, we ended up not making the interest payment and hanging on to that money in the belief that without making those interest payments, we just make it, right? We just get to profitability before we ran out of money. Uh, and we, you know, we got a lot of great advice from folks who do this for a living, bankruptcy attorneys. And, and they said, you know, what you're doing is actually protecting the interest of the debt holders as well as your stockholders and patients because you need to stay solvent uh, or they're not going to get anything. But again, there was nobody at Lehman Brothers to answer the phone and say, we agree, we'll give you a waiver, we'll extend your payments. They just kept threatening, we can put you into bankruptcy, which they had the legal right to do. I remember one question from a student. You said you did everything to try to navigate uh, uh, and make the company survive. Um, Did you raise prices? We did. We also took management salary cuts. We eliminated bonus programs. We rolled back benefits. I mean, it was everything on the table. But again, why? Right? What What was the principle that drove this? And I wrestled a bit with, you know, is my duty only to stockholders? Right? Am I just trying to protect equity value? And, you know, eventually I, I recognized, as most of us do, that investors invest in higher risk and lower risk uh, securities. And, you know, at some point they understand they're taking some risk, and we had certainly been clear about that. So I, I, I felt bad that I might lose money uh, for investors who bet on me. But, but I got past that, and then I wrestled with the employee issues, putting people out into a bad job market. But again, I thought we did everything we could. The thing I couldn't get past were, were these patients who were counting on us, right? There was nobody else that was going to step in and run that clinical trial. They had enrolled in the clinical trial with, uh, you know, the promise that they'd get treatment or placebo, but, you know, they'd, they'd have the opportunity to see if that treatment benefited them. To pull the plug in the middle of a clinical trial is just a violation of the trust of those uh, patients who volunteered to, to help you learn something about a potential treatment. And that one I couldn't get past. And that's why that went to the top of my priority list was we cannot let these patients down. We can, you know, uh, disadvantage employees, we can disadvantage stockholders, but we owe it to these patients to do the right thing. It's incredible. So let's uh, leap ahead to 2009, uh, out of 2008. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened then? But then I'd love to hear about uh, the last 10 years. Yeah. Well, it was a white knuckle time for the management team and the board. Uh, We had uh, 26 board meetings uh, in 2009 uh, at my company. Uh, as I went back and looked at our proxy statement to check that fact, um, I used to do meetings where we would forecast how many more weeks of cash we had. And my goal was every week when we updated that forecast that that number would not have gone down. Gradually, that number started getting bigger. 
uh, and it became clear to me we would hit cash flow break even in the summer of 2009. Now, the stock was still trading at 50 cents a share. We couldn't raise new capital. Uh, so, you know, things were tough. But as we started to see our way to we can get back to profitability, now we can go talk to the bank about paying them back that interest at default rates, at higher rates. We can talk about can we restructure the balance sheet. We can start, you know, moving the business forward little by little. And this awful process we had gone through of spiraling down toward the ground started going in reverse. We started spiraling up. You have no options. Now you've got one option. Now you've got two options. You get to make a different choice. You get to push something forward. Uh, and while you can't see 100 steps ahead, you can see a few steps ahead and keep making uh, forward progress. You know, we did get the company back in stronger shape. Many of those employees, not all, but many of those employees have rejoined the company. We're about 1,500 employees worldwide today. Our company is very profitable. And we can now fund, out of our own cash flow, uh, much more research and development, much more development of new medications. Uh, of course, we can often access the external uh, capital markets as well. But I will stay, say I'm, as a leader, probably still cautious that I don't want my strategy to be entirely dependent on continued access to cheap capital, probably because of that experience I went through. What advice do you give to uh, young entrepreneurs, learner? What do you hope they learned from that uh, discussion? Well, you better love what you do, and you better be doing it because you really believe in it. Because when you're struggle, struggling through hard times, you know you need to believe the work you're doing really matters. Um, the other thing I would say is, if you do have core values that are important to you uh, that you want to embed in the organization. Uh, do that communication as often and as frequently as you can and build it into the organization. Are you building those values into how you recruit, how you onboard, how you reward performance, what you recognize? Are you collecting data? Do you ask your employees in an anonymous survey, is the culture you're experiencing day to day what we say it is? Does that match up? Be transparent about that data. Feed it back to your employees. Where are we on track? Where are we off track? Tell them what you're going to do when you're off track. Measure again, right? So it's it's not just talk. You're building it into the organization. And the advantage of that is when you hit these tough moments and you now say to your employees, including in our case, unfortunately, departing employees, here are our principles. Here's how we make decisions. They're not hearing something new. They know that's how the company makes decisions, right? It, it feels consistent. Um, but, but trying to figure that out during the crisis is exceptionally hard. You know, wow, Jack, as a f colleague in this wonderful discipline of entrepreneurship education, this type of conversation and these kinds of lessons are not have not been emphasized. What do you hope students get out of this session that you do, but the whole course? Because I've watched you just dive into this with such verve and intensity uh, over the last year or year and a half, um, and I've been so impressed by that. But what's been motivating you to to build this course and these kinds of lessons? Well, I hope that by having folks like Bruce and other wonderful leaders uh, 
uh, at our class sessions. And I hope that by helping prepare the students' minds with these ideas about what values and principles are and getting in touch with their own values and principles, that we enable them to bring those values and principles and and when times get tough and when you're faced with these difficult situations, that those values and principles will shine. I know of no other way that we can do a better job of helping folks make the right kind of decisions for themselves than by giving them an opportunity to share experiences with people like Bruce. And can, and can I just jump in and say, uh, you know, it's fun to share the last chapter of the story or the next chapter. Um, but this this story isn't important because it worked. The importance of this story is I got to be the leader I wanted to be in a tough time and I could live with myself. Right. I felt like there was a reason I was making the decisions I was making. And I think for any leader to go through a tough time and feel comfortable that they are. They can be proud of the way they acted is important, whether or not it succeeds, right? And I, I just want to emphasize the point. The importance of this case is not that it worked. The importance of this case is the principles actually were the principles. And when times got tough, you stuck by them and you could feel good about that. And we also encourage the students to be explicit about their principles and walk the talk as Bruce described. Uh, we talk about how your employees not only um, listen to what you say, but they are watching every little move that you do. What was the first question you asked? How did he react when we said that? Um, You need to communicate those principles, and then you need to live by those principles as a leadership team. You know, I think this course is powerful because it is experiential in some way in the discussions. It's based on real cases. You've got access to real speakers who live through that. I think it's just the start for these students. And I came away really encouraged. I think they were wrestling with some of this, and that's great. Like Bruce, I'm encouraged that Jack's students were wrestling deeply with the questions posed by this case study. And I especially appreciate Bruce's comment that the point of the story isn't that his strategy worked. The point is that no matter what happened, He could have walked away knowing that he'd done his best to balance his responsibilities to his employees, his investors, and especially the patients in the clinical trials. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Stanford Innovation Lab podcast to stay in the loop on future episodes. And feel free to review us and give us some stars to help us reach more listeners with this conversation about ethical entrepreneurship. This episode was produced by Luke Sikora and Rachel Jolkowski for Stanford eCorner and was edited by Katie Fernelius. Danielle Stusi is our designer and digital products manager. Our growth marketing specialist is Nora Kata, and I'm Tom Byers. Thanks for listening.